My name is Patricia Burgess. I am a bankruptcy and restructuring partner with Ralph Brown Todd and a special projects lead for the Emerging Industries and Technology Committee of ABI. We have spoken in our first three episodes about various crypto issues. What is it? Is the law adapting to it? And fiduciary issues surrounding crypto assets. On this, our final episode, we would like to pull together those concepts and talk about what bankruptcy lawyers need to know about crypto. I am pleased to introduce my partners, John Wagster, Jared Tully, and Jordan Blanks. I am pleased to introduce my partner, John Wagster. John leads the firm's technology industry team and digital assets subteam. He focuses on technology-related commercial agreements with a particular interest in blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, and the automotive space. He also has unique experience helping companies forge cross-cultural contractual agreements around the world using industry best practices and Western-style contracts. John represents scores of clients across the blockchain ecosystem, including issuers of digital tokens through initial coin offerings, providers of distributed applications, cryptocurrency hedge funds, exchanges, consultants, and marketers. Finally, John has extensive experience handling complex cybersecurity incidents and serves as chair of the firm's China desk. Also joining us today is my partner, Jared Tully. Jared is a litigator and bankruptcy practitioner in FBT's Charleston, West Virginia office. Jared serves as the vice chair of the firm's business and commercial litigation practice group, and he serves as the leader of the firm's financial institution subteam which focuses on all issues related to banking and financial institutions. In addition to Jared's commercial litigation and bankruptcy practice, Jared has been working on insolvency cases involving cryptocurrency and advising clients navigating exchange insolvency. Additionally, Jared has been addressing and litigating smart contract disputes involving token ownership and application of smart contract protocol. Thank you, gentlemen, and welcome. I'd like to also introduce Jordan Blask. Jordan serves as an outside general counsel to middle market, private, or closely held businesses across many industries with a focus on restructuring, bankruptcy, and distressed transaction. He is also the partner in charge of the Pittsburgh office of Cross Brown Todd. Jordan has spent considerable time representing clients who are impacted by the recent crypto winter and the regulatory uncertainty surrounding the crypto and blockchain industries. He has done various presentations on bankruptcy-specific issues involving cryptocurrency. We've talked a lot about um, crypto concepts. I'd like to really now focus in this segment on some of the pitfalls that a bankruptcy practitioner needs to be aware of, how crypto is unique in the bankruptcy setting. So let maybe you can enlighten us a little bit with respect to valuation. What is, how do we value crypto? When do we value crypto and how are, how are, how are practitioners to think through those issues? So I can tell you how we value it and you can tell me how practitioners think through those issues. So most cryptocurrencies, you can establish a value by going to a website called CoinMarketCap or uh, LiveCoin or there are many of them. It will tell you what the trading value is on various exchanges. Um, Trading values may differ a little bit between exchanges, but generally, unless there's a problem, uh, you, a digital asset is going to trade roughly the same on different exchanges. Um, 
the challenges you have if you are in the bankruptcy or uh, purview is that there may be some assets that are staked. And by staking, you mean they're, they're posted in a liquidity pool locked by a smart contract for a certain period of time. So if I have staked my Ethereum, for example, I believe it's a used to be a six-month staking process, uh, and I can't get it out for six months. So if a bankruptcy practitioner needs to value right now, you can give a paper value, but you cannot liquidate until that six months is over. Um, other tokens have a value at a particular time that uh, that might increase or decrease. Uh, they're called rebasing tokens, where every day or every 12 hours, depending on what that particular protocol calls for, the values of those tokens are revamped and rewards are added to the value of the token so that it might increase. In that case, you can probably sell the token uh, whenever you want to, but if you sell it, you are depriving the bankruptcy estate or the creditor or whoever the individual is of the ability to continue to earn the rewards or the interest that they're due uh, by virtue of the fact that they hold that token. Jordan, as a bankruptcy or charitor, Jordan, um, as a bankruptcy practitioner, if you're debtor's counsel and you have crypto as an asset, how, how what value do you put on the schedules for the when you're filing your petition? Well, I'll, I'll jump in here at least initially. Um, valuation, in my mind, goes to a couple things. What are your motivations? If it's the value as of the date of the petition, Trish, as you put it, you use John's resource. I think. You're filling out your bankruptcy schedule, you schedule a token or some other crypto asset, you go on in a publicly available information site and you plug in a value. X number of coins versus Y dollar, you schedule it that way. The other value challenge that as bankruptcy practitioners we think about is, okay, an asset has left the estate. I run it back in the estate for the benefit of creditors. And when that comes back in, I want to peg a value to it in a way that is both fair to the estate and fair to the creditors. And there's been an evolving analysis in the cases that have been filed. And I think even before of the question of what is the value for purposes of recovery of an avoidable transfer or the unwinding of a, of a transfer of the crypto asset out of the estate. And, and the debate tends to come down to petition date, like we talked about, the date of recovery of the asset back into the estate, or ultimately the date that that asset's liquidated to then pay for the benefit of creditors. We talked earlier in the series about trustees maximizing or preserving value. And creditors could argue, I want the highest value, which means you have to hold for a longer period of time subject to all the nuances we've been talking about in this period. Um, so my mind goes to those three sort of measuring times, petition, recovery date, or liquidation date. Um, and embedded in that, unfortunately, again, becomes this distinction of the type of asset it is also. Um, Jared, thoughts? No, Jordan, I think that's right. You bring up an interesting issue, and that is, um, you know, if you're trying to bring a crypto asset back into the estate, uh, what do you need to know? Uh, you, you know, the, the, these assets could could move around the world 15 times in, in seconds. Uh, so, so how do you, uh, as a practitioner, think about filing the, those preference actions when these assets could move so rapidly that they're difficult to transfer? John, what are your thoughts on on 
how a practitioner can can know where these assets have gone um, when they're trying to recover them for the benefit of the creditors of the estate. So there's a couple issues there that what we're dancing around is, can you control the asset? And it doesn't really matter what its value is if you don't have control of it. And so the first thing the bankruptcy practitioner must do is get control, make sure they can get control. And we discussed earlier, if it's a centralized exchange, you can send a letter to the exchange. And most exchanges have a process for doing that. Send it back to man. Uh, if it's decentralized, however, you have a much tougher time and you have to actually control that person's private key, which is generally a 12, 16 word seed phrase. So if you don't have that control, you talk about value all day. That doesn't really matter. But let's assume you have control and you're trying to determine how do you exercise it? When do you take back that value? Uh, it's a unique characteristic of cryptocurrency or blockchain-based assets that all transactions are recorded forever. So you can always tell where an asset is sent, but you cannot unwind that transaction. So if you're trying to uh, undo a preference, if that's the right terminology, you can't do that through blockchain technology. You would have to reach out to somehow contact the recipient of that asset and ask them to return it and they would have to say yes or exercise legal control over them because there is no way to unring the bell in crypto. Now, there is a limited exception to that. That's if you're dealing with stable coins. Stable coins are assets which are denominated by a, in a particular, um, with a particular currency, most commonly the US dollar. So one stable coin, Tether or USDC stable coin equals $1. Stable coin issuers, because they're centralized, they can actually unwind a transaction. So they can, if you can show dependably that 2000 Tether were transferred here, you go to the police, the police sends them notice, they can unwind that, they have the ability to unwind that transaction by displaying it and issuing because they hold a collateral in a centralized fashion. But most crypto assets, you, know, you don't really have problems if your assets are denominated as stable coins because they're largely treated by do like dollars. Well, the challenge comes if they're denominated some other digital asset. If it gets transferred, um, the minute a petition is filed, you can track it, but it's going to be really hard to get access to it again. John, John you, you raise a, uh, some, some, some good points to raise some questions in my mind. And that is, so, so you know, if, if you have an uncooperative recipient of a crypto asset, so, some villain actor, uh, uh, as we have heard some, some reports of in, in some of the exchange bankruptcies that we've seen, what, um, what do we need to, to, what do practitioners need to know about, uh, those actors? Can they determine who they are so that they can even serve them, uh, un under traditional, uh, crypto arrangements? That's a great question. In fact, is no, they usually don't. Um, there are some exceptions, but if the actor has the villain actor, as you put it out like that term, the villain actor is registered in a centralized exchange. They probably had to have their, know your, they had to fulfill and know your customer obligations. So that exchange probably has access to them. So if they're trading through a centralized exchange, yes, you can get access um, through legal channels. If they're not, if they're trading on a decentralized exchange, then no, you cannot. Um, there's just simply no way to find out who they are unless they have to reveal themselves. Uh, steps you might take is go to chat rooms where, uh, you know, Discord or Medium or Telegram, where a lot of people that trade in particular cryptocurrencies will go to discuss that cryptocurrency. And you may identify that person's handle, or they may have something about them that, you know, that uh, indicates who they are with respect to specific maybe bragging about the trade they made or the money they stole, uh, which is not uncommon. So that's, you know, it goes back to that phrase we have in crypto, no keys, no coin. 
not your keys, not your coin. If you don't have the keys to access, to access the crypto, either yourself or through some centralized exchange, you cannot get access to it. Now, it is possible, as recently as last week, a court has authorized the service of process through the sending of a non-fungible token. So if the individual you have, who the felon actor has an Ethereum-based wallet address, and you can send an NFT with a copy of a subpoena or a demand letter in it, and he, the recipient then goes online to his Discord chat room and does something to indicate that he's received that notice, then he's been served. He or she has been served. Now, that means that you can probably get a default judgment unless they decide to show up. So I don't know how much good that does you, but at least you can you can serve his process. And, and that that's as recently as last week, that's happened in California in a, in a class action suit. You anticipated my next question. That, that was, you know, the courts have come up with a lot of uh, pretty innovative procedural processes to to uh, try to tackle the crypto industry, um, but but to your point, you know they they may get a, get a judgment, but they're never going to get a return of the coins or or, or payment for whatever the judgment ultimately may be. Yeah, at least on the decentralized uh, exchanges, unless the recipient is is cooperative and willing to return that crypto or willing to uh, pay that judgment. If they're not, it sounds like you're 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 really at at, uh, at the end of end of your rope in trying to find uh, what you can find, what uh, assets are available to satisfy that judgment. I think you 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 largely come to a dead end. Except remember that a lot of digital assets are controlled by really wealthy holders, and a lot of tokens are sponsored by really big companies, increasingly private equity and crypto investment companies. So if you can link a particular asset or a wallet to an investment company or to one of the initial holders of that crypto and then trace them back to the companies that sponsored them, you may have a lot more leverage than you think. So if you have a you know, company that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars or more, uh, and they've got this nuisance of a demand letter and they thought, well, what are my odds of getting away with this if I just refuse to comply uh, versus, hey, this is a nuisance, I think I'm just gonna pay it out so I don't end up uh, you know, getting my entire company in trouble. So there might be some leverage there. But it does require creative thinking. So it sounds like we have to identify the bad actor, the villain actor. And if we can't identify the villain actor, there is going to be no way to recover. Do you see legislation or courts trying to regulate disclosure in situations like this? Or because of the whole nature of decentralized finance, that that goes against the entire concept. It does go against the concept of decentralized finance. Uh, having said that, purveyors of DeFi are not stupid, and they see the writing on the walls, and they know they realize that regulation is coming uh, in many jurisdictions. So that's forcing one or two reactions. One is okay, let's play nice. Let's try and find ways to accept cryptocurrency that has only been KYC. So only if somebody is on ramp from fiat to crypto in a centralized exchange or in some way that allows them to be identified will we deal with them. Um, that's not the prevailing point of view, but that some people do think that's possible. And there's some uh, DeFi exchanges that are okay with that. Um, so one reaction is, okay, we can't beat them. Drunk. The other one is, we can't beat them, let's run like hell. And that's, let's be even more decentralized. Let's let it. Let's eliminate every possible point of centralization from our profile and divide ourselves up 
instead of just being one DAO that controls this large decentralized finance platform, let's break it down to over dozens of DAOs. And each DAO controls a different investment pool to try and segregate liability, to maintain the argument, to create a narrative that, yes, that might have been a bad actor, but that was a bad actor in that one pool. Therefore, it only affects the people in that pool. It doesn't affect our entire platform. So is there... Is there any distinction in these in these different bankruptcies when uh, I'm a creditor and I'm trying to determine where my priority lies, if I'm going to be a general unsecured creditor, is there ever a situation where I, I might have a claim for a higher priority of recovering? I don't think so in the context, uh, you know, we've discussed earlier, I believe the fact that if you are, if your assets are held in a centralized crypto exchange, the exchange is the record owner of your assets, not you. So it's not like if you own stocks of apples, uh, 15 shares of Apple, like Jordan said, you can go attach those 15 shares. If the centralized exchange is holding your crypto, they have your keys and they control your coin. So if they go bankrupt, your money is tied up in that bankruptcy and you do not have a preference to it. Um, I guess that's obvious. Sounds obvious as you say it, but even as an attorney, I didn't know that, you know, up to until a year or so ago. And I immediately transferred my assets out of a centralized exchange because exchanges, you know, hit volatility and they hit tough times. There's a lot of regulation. We don't we don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know if that answers your question. That's that's my first thought of it. Jordan, maybe you can help us to clarify that difference between that and like a brokerage. Well, I was just gonna say John is answering the question on uh, where we are right now, right? Um, and I think there are stakeholders out there regarding the legislation, the claims that are being litig uh, litigated right now, who, who might want a slightly different outcome, which is, you know, if you didn't understand the nature of, of the platform and the platform filed for bankruptcy, and you're shocked when you come to the finding that you're a general unsecured creditor like everybody else, you're going to kick and scream and say, I didn't understand. And what you're going to probably argue is to equate that custodial arrangement to one similar to a broker-dealer. And while there's plenty of case law and there's the statutory consideration in the bankruptcy code or otherwise for what happens when a brokerage platform, a regulated brokerage platform files for bankruptcy, nothing in the bankruptcy code that speaks to crypto assets whatsoever. In a brokerage scenario, like we've seen you know, in various financial crises over the years, when the brokerage files for bankruptcy, they're custodian of, of their customer's assets held um, for that custodian, for that custo the customer's benefit. Um, if, if John has an account with a brokerage to file for bankruptcy and he has 100 shares of Apple in it, he can point to that account and say, those are my 100 shares of Apple. I want them transferred from this brokerage account to another brokerage account. It's easy. You're a higher priority creditor, you're secured almost in that sense. Um, there's provisions in the bankruptcy code that spell that out. Um, I think people in the last six months were absolutely shocked when the exchanges filed for bankruptcy. They had an expectation of a similar treatment under um, the uh, securities bankruptcy provisions for brokerage and came to find out that they were general unsecured creditors, the same as, you know, the guy who, who delivered the map or, you know, provided on general service. Um, and I think that that is, is fueling a lot of the debate, pushing for regulation um, and pushing 
for clarity in where the um, centralized and decentralized platforms fall within this regulatory scheme. And, and I'll point out, um, Jordan, that's exactly the issue that has caused this most recent reset contagion in crypto starting in the middle of last year when a, a Three Arrows Capital, a, a prominent crypto hedge fund, uh, went under. And everybody wanted their assets. It's like, well, you, you can't just get them anymore. You gave your assets up to them and they control your assets. So there's no priority. And there were millions of dollars tied up. And that, in turn, infected Celsius, which is another big lending platform that went out of business, which in turn affected FDX, which has gone out of business. And we're going to cover yeah, subsequent to that, these allegations of fraud. So uh, it's exactly that issue that's raising its head. Uh, and we, we've been stung by it. Does that does it matter if it's the crypto is determined to be a security, a commodity, or currency? And isn't that really a case by case analysis as to the structure? Would would that impact that? It it, it absolutely would impact it. And one of the allegations that the SEC has made most recently against Binance, uh, which trades trades globally, and Coinbase, which trades in the U.S., they made the allegation that they were acting as unregistered securities brokers because they were trading digital assets, they were actually digital securities. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether they actually were trading digital securities, but whether they were or not, if those platforms become regulated by either the SEC or if some have proposed now by the CFTC, uh, that would change. And that would be a marked improvement for the investing bubble. So there's some other pitfalls that bankruptcy practitioners should be concerned about or should be thinking through if they're dealing with crypto in bankruptcy. Jared, let's talk about some of the jurisdictional challenges. We, we think about we thought about how these assets move and where they're located, and it, it becomes more, more interesting when you think about the DAOs. Um, but these could be anywhere in, in, in not only the U.S., but anywhere in the world. Um, and if we look at, for example, Three Arrows Capital, uh, that filing was made in the British Virgin Islands, and then there was a Chapter 15 filing in the U.S. to, to address assets in the U.S., um, which I think, uh, as a side note, I think as as, jurist, as regulations come for DAOs and they're 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 making their uh, they're reacting to those those changes. Uh, some of them are going to go overseas, which is going to require some some international uh, bankruptcy cooperation because you're going to have um, you know, the, those DAOs moving overseas uh, and you're going to have to address assets that may be in the U.S. or the U.K., uh, Germany, Russia, China. There's, there's a lot of uh, interesting international issues that, that arise from, from that consideration. We, we, we've got the, these exchanges that, that may not have a a physical presence that anyone knows about. Um, so, John, think about where where a DAO is located. Do we even know? Yeah. So, to your point, Jared, you know, some DAOs in in a traditional context, the whole point of a DAO is it's decentralized. So, you know, we as as legal practitioners, we kind of think, well, it's got to be somewhere. It actually doesn't. You know, people will start a conversation in the chat room, you know, results in a concept that's built out by the individuals in that chat room who might not even know who each other are. Uh, and they may be in continents all around the world and they don't care where they are and they don't have a legal jurisdiction because they don't want one. They don't need one. In fact, what they're doing is anathema to legal jurisdictions. That's why they're doing it. So they actually are nowhere 
and that's part of their identity. Others, uh, often those that are backed by you know, venture capital money or, or real money, are going to have a legal jurisdiction because they what they want is the protection that a legal jurisdiction can give. So DAO, DAOs are generally considered as uh, most legal experts think that DAOs in the U.S. would be considered a, a general partnership. In a general partnership, every member is responsibility for is responsible for the liabilities of every other member, uh, and that's scary to a DAO. So, since that has become more and more clear through several court uh, actions, DAOs are now trying to diversify. As I talked about earlier, you know, a large DAO that controls a large platform may be converting itself into small sub DAOs, and DAOs are generally controlled by the token holders that are the medium of exchange on that particular platform for now. So uh, if you can find regulatory jurisdiction, I suspect what happened with FTX will continue happening. Uh, you know, they were registered in, I believe, the Cayman Islands or BDIs, uh, but a bankruptcy filing was uh, was filed in New York right away. And nobody seemed to argue that. Um, there have been several in the Bahamas as well uh, that were steered to New York. Any other bankruptcy-specific pitfalls that we would like to highlight for the audience? Yeah, I would just emphasize everything in this context is about control. And we can talk till uh, we're blue in the face about what we would do with these assets if we could get them. But if you can't get them, it doesn't matter what you can do. So a person who wants to practice in this area has to know how to use a digital wallet. They have to understand what it's like to create a a an account on a centralized exchange. They need to know how to trade assets. So any bankruptcy practitioner or trustee who's interested in this work needs to go buy some tokens and buy, sell, and trade them. We make fun of these silly meme tokens like Doge, Kool-Aid, and Shibu Ito and laugh that they're worth you know, a millionth of a penny. Uh, but that's one way to learn. Go spend $10 and buy 100 million tokens and play with them. Transfer them back and forth from a wallet to another wallet. Use different kinds of wallets. Put them in cold storage. Take them out of cold storage. If you do that, you're going to be ahead of 99% of the other practitioners in the space. All right. I really appreciate this, guys. I hope everyone enjoyed our series on crypto and bankruptcy. Crafts Ground Todd has a robust crypto practice that ranges from transactional to litigation to bankruptcy. It has been our pleasure to offer insight into this industry to ABI podcast listeners.